The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Live from the Nasdaq market side overlooking New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. I'm Melissa Lee. Tonight's trader lineup, Brian Kelly, Dan Nathan, Karen Feinerman, and Guy Adami. Tonight on Fast, we're breaking down today's pullback with Morgan Stanley's chief U.S. equity strategist, Mike Wilson. He's been calling for a sell-off. We'll get his take on today's drop and where he sees the market headed next. Plus, Baba gets battered. The Chinese tech giant falling again today. The stock is now down nearly 10% in a week. One of our traders is long this name why they're hunkering down for the long haul. And later, Twitter takes the tumble, the stock falling nearly 3% today. We'll talk about that and much more in our exclusive interview with Twitter CFO Ned Siegel. We start off with breaking news out of Pfizer. Let's get straight to Meg Terrell with the details. Hi, Meg. Hey, Melissa. Pfizer giving an update on its strategy around potential booster shots that might be needed uh, against COVID-19. They are saying that while it looks promising just to give a third potential booster of their original uh, vaccine in terms of boosting the antibody levels, out of precaution, they are developing a Delta-targeted uh booster, potential booster shot um, that they anticipate beginning clinical trials of in August if they get the FDA's go-ahead. They don't know that this will be needed, but they are developing it just in case. Now, they are also saying that what they've seen from real-world evidence, including from Israel, uh, makes them more convinced that they uh, think we're going to need boosters uh, within 6 to 12 months after full vaccination. They say, uh, based on the data they've seen, quote, while protection against severe disease remained high across the full six months, the observed decline in efficacy against symptomatic disease over time and the continued emergence of variants are key factors driving our belief that a booster dose will likely be necessary to maintain highest levels of protection. Uh, So, Mel, they are covering all their bases, making sure they're prepared against Delta if they need it, uh, but saying they are reassured by what they've seen already in the data of their original vaccine. Back over to you. Meg, you cited the data out of Israel. Dr. Scott Gottlieb, when we spoke to him on Squawk Box on Tuesday, had pointed out that that was a small sample, and I'm wondering if if they're continuing to study um, the efficacy of the original vaccine on the Delta variant in a, in a bigger size? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, they are going to be looking at a, a booster of the original vaccine to see how that does against the Delta variant um, itself. There are a lot of questions about those mo- most recent data out of Israel, and it's not even clear they're talking about that questionable number, the 64 percent protection against infection and mild disease um, against Delta in Israel, or if they're just talking more broadly about all of the real world evidence that's been collected from Israel. They say they do start to see a bit of a waning in the protection from the vaccine after six months, and that's why they think booster shots will be needed. Of course, it's good for their business, too, if they do. Yeah. If, if they get the green light from the FDA, Meg, is there any sense as to whether or not uh, they can give a timeline after that? I mean, seeing the trajectory in which they develop the actual vaccine. Yeah, it's a really great question about also the FDA, uh, the FDA would need to decide, you know, are we switching to a, a different uh, variant targeted vaccine too? the FDA and the CDC's advisory committees would weigh in on that as well. And then how does Pfizer shift its manufacturing to potentially make uh, that different vaccine? All of these things would need to be considered. The good news is it really does look like boosting with the original vaccine does lift up your neutralizing antibody titers pretty high and should potentially be protective, but they are just covering their bases. All right, Meg, thank you. Meg Terrell. From Englewood Cliffs, our headquarters. Brian Kelly, I'm not saying that this was a reason behind 
the market action today. Well, but if Delta were a concern, this it takes is potentially it off the table, good news. Right? So to the extent that, that markets don't like uncertainty, there was certainly a, a theme and a narrative in the market that Delta, maybe not here in the U.S., but the rest of the world, uh, was going to become a problem. And not only that, that potentially it was piercing through some of the vaccines. That would be kind of your worst-case scenario. So to the extent that this takes that off the table, it's one more thing, that one less risk that you have out there. There's a lot going in the market, but I do think this is an incremental positive for equities. No doubt. I mean, great news, right? We knew that there were probably all of these vaccine makers were working on boosters and they're going to have them ready for whatever time period in which they thought that the um, any variants um, might be pe- uh, poking their heads up. Um, listen, we're going to continue to get this news. They're going to have these boosters ready. I don't think the stock market was particularly too bothered. I think that a lot of people thought that the rise of some of these variants over the last few weeks or a couple months or so was one of the reasons that yields were kind of weighed down the way that they have been. But the stock market really wasn't reflecting that. And again, the S&P 500 down less than 1% from yesterday's all-time highs. It doesn't think the market had been pricing a whole heck of a lot of risk as it relates to these variants really slowing down the global economy anytime soon. I mean, the context of the market move is important, and that is that the markets are basically at levels we saw just last week. We are just a percent or so off of record highs, Guy Adami. Um, but we were watching the 10-year yield very, very closely. And when it got to 125 and it pierced 125 ever so briefly this morning, that was a moment where you thought, huh, I wonder if one's in the cards. Yeah. But I had Chris Verone from last night in my head who said uh, presciently the 10-year yields would go down to one and a quarter percent, hold and bounce. And he made a very compelling case why that'd be the case. So, so far, you know, if you're a binary option player, he's gotten half that trade right. My sense is he's going to be right quickly in terms of Moderna and Pfizer. You know, for every intelligent thing I say, Karen says 100 intelligent things. But she said something in the fall uh, when we were talking about Moderna and Pfizer. And she said, you know, Moderna's probably best suited to monetize. And if you were playing the stock market, it would be mRNA. And if you look since then... And we've talked about it on the show numerous times. I mean, that stock has gone from 60, not in a straight line, but we find ourselves here north of $230 a share. And Pfizer, having peaked out at 43 when their news came out, has been meandering around 39. So I think Moderna is still the way to play it. And I'm glad that Karen said that many, many months ago. I thought that ratio in terms of the number of smart things she says to you, I mean, that was a little low, actually, yeah, a little low. <laughs> a little low. Um, but that was an well, excellent point on Moderna right. in particular in that in that the vaccine business to Moderna is a much bigger impact to its bottom line as opposed to a Pfizer, which is a much more diversified pharmaceuticals company. Karen, do you still agree with that or, or is the best way to play the solution yeah. to the Delta variant still the reopening trades? Well, so do I agree with that, that 100 things I say, one smart, one for guy? No, no. The ratio is very, very different. But look how smart I am. I own Pfizer. So, you know, that's gone nowhere. And Moderna's up a lot. But I do think that the Delta variant, I think Brian said it, that it doesn't weigh on the U.S. so much, I don't think. But I think it does weigh on the global economy. And that matters to us. And so I do think that's weighing on the market. And to the extent that there is good news on that front, I do think that's better for the reopen trade. I think also some of the sort of um, just momentum of the reopen trade was sort of it was, you know, a transitory excitement about the reopen trade. But I'm still long reopen stocks. You know, I, I'm, I think we're going to continue to see strength. I think, you know, look at some like neat retail names. I think we're going to see, in the words of the great Jeff Mackey, who I love talking about retail with, a gigantic back-to-school season. 
So yeah, that's and, a reopen trade to me. Yeah, and you make a great point, Karen. I mean, you know, the, the, again, broad market is not down a whole heck of a lot. It hasn't really kind of blinked at any of this stuff, but there's plenty of sectors that have been really hard hit. It, look at the airlines. I know we talk about them a lot. I mean, some of these majors that rely on business travel and overseas travel are down 20% just in the last few weeks or so. And it'll be interesting to see how this Pfizer news and if we get other news about other boosters, and they seem very likely to come in the not-so-distant future, how some of these stocks and some of these sectors um, react because if they don't really bounce, then again, it really wasn't about the variant. It might have more to do with the pace or the expectations for a global concentrated or coordinated sort of reflation trade, right. whether that's going to happen or not, or the, what is the, the level of deceleration we're going to see um, relative to expectations. And I think that's what's probably going on right now in, the, in some of these sectors. Well, the I hood. think that's, that's a good point, though. It's, it's the level of deceleration that we're going to see. And to the extent that getting rid of it, the Delta variant globally is going to reduce that deceleration to a certain extent. Right. You know, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about what's going on in the actual market, but what, what to me today, you know, it was really about what central banks are doing and will this liquidity spigot be turned off or turned down a bit or are we going to go back into liquidity again? And what do you think? Uh, well, today, today, I mean, we, we saw what the ECB did, right? They came out and yeah. said, listen, we're going to have a corridor of inflation and high inflation we're going to go against as well. And so what we have to see now, I think ultimately the economy is going to weaken. Central banks are going to be forced back into opening up the spigot, expanding their balance sheets again. And that's how you get rising yields going into the second half of the year. So what happens in that scenario, Guy, what happens to stocks? Because at the same time, we're seeing um, better earnings, or more earnings power from companies, in theory, unless what BK says really impacts no, how the look, companies are, are doing. It's interesting. I mean, I know you're a fan of the football, the American football, the oblong-shaped ball that you kick through the goalposts. And I mention that because in the NFL, the goalposts, if you remember, uh, used to be basically on the goal line. They moved the goalposts, but the NFL only moved the goalposts once. These central bankers move them seemingly every week. And when they see any signs of weakness, they continue to move those goalposts. So it stands to reason when things don't work out there, whether they continue to do it. I mention that because it will continue to be probably bullish for equities until somebody or something calls them on it. And maybe we're close in terms of what's happening with yields, although I do think we're going to bounce. But at a certain point, somebody's going to call um, the the um, friendly BS. I won't use the entire word, if you know what I mean. Well, guy, hold on a second here. You often say that you have a memory hold like on, an I'm elephant. You like, mean, like an elephant. Don't you remember the whole transitory tantrum when the whole pundit class and all your pals, you guys were screaming at the Fed. They had it wrong. Inflation was here. It was high. It was here to stay. Right. Well, what happened, man? I mean, like, you know, the Fed actually kind of got it right. And they have the same kind of crystal balls no. that we do. Don't they a little bit? I don't know. I'm just saying, like, you know. Wait, the transitory tantrum you know, it's a good point. is over? It's kind of over because no, we did what we needed to do, me. right? It's they needed the to tree. Well, well, guy, what I'm saying is the pain trade on yields when everyone was screaming that the Fed was going to basically overstay their welcome and we're going to have runaway inflation and we're going to have asset bubbles and all And listen, the asset bubbles may be here. I, I don't think we're going to have runaway inflation. Um, so, I, I mean, my point is, is like, 
Yields went down. They might go a little lower. Maybe some technician will tell you to the penny um, where it's going to stop. I suspect that maybe we see closer to 1% before it's all done. Um, And you tell me, is that supportive of equities? Well, maybe if it turns into a situation where I don't use the term weakening economy, because if you think about where we are, we have to start thinking about what would normalized um, 2022 Mm -hmm. growth rates be based on pre-pandemic levels. And, you know, like what happened in 2020 and 2021, just throw them out. It doesn't matter. Let's get back to some stuff where we can start to model it. Let's get more in today's market action. Yeah, it's I, oh, sorry. No, finish your thought, Guy. No, I was going to say was it's interesting. You know, you can draw the conclusion that the Fed has it right vis-a-vis rates going lower. I would suggest that rates are going lower doesn't mean the Fed has it right. That inflation hasn't gone away. I mean, it's manifesting itself all along. But we'll see that again. As they say, that's what makes markets melt. Sorry to interrupt. No, no, no worries there. Let's bring in Mike Wilson, Morgan Stanley's chief U.S. equity strategist. Mike, great to have you with us. Um, you've been calling for some sort of a pullback. Are we seeing this unfold as we speak? Yeah, well, thanks, Melissa. I mean, we've had pullbacks. I think Dan was alluding to it. We've mm-hmm. had, you know, this sort of rolling correction go through the market. It was the high price stocks earlier in the year. Then it was SPACs. And you know, now they're getting into the reopening and sort of recovery stocks. Um, as you know, perhaps you know, people are worried that maybe the peak rate of change is in. This is all part of the same narrative, which is you know, after you reach the peak rate of change on growth and policy, the market always goes through what we call a mid-cycle transition. And during that transition, the market is searching for the next leadership group, and it, it's confused. It doesn't really know, you know, what it wants to bet on. Should it, should inflation be transitory? Did the Fed stop that? Are we going to have a growth slowdown that's more meaningful in the back half of the year? All those factors, I think, are weighing on sort of this, these rotations that we're seeing in the marketplace. So here's how we think it plays out. Number one, we think that peak liquidity already happened. That happened in February, March with you know, peak rate of change on M2, M1 growth. That's what hit the high price stocks and some of the speculative areas. And that's continued. And we think that's probably a good thing, meaning some of the speculative assets are no longer trading at ridiculous multiples. Some still are, but we're taking some of the air out of the balloon there. Now, as we go through the the transition into the second half of this year, we think one thing that's being underestimated, the Delta variant is important for international markets, as Karen said, but for the U.S., it's not a big deal. I think the bigger deal for the U.S. market and economy is the fiscal cliff that we're going to experience because the stimulus was just so huge over the last 12 months. There has to be a payback in demand to some some degree. And I think part of the uh, yields coming in is related to that, that there's going to be a deceleration that's bigger than what people are anticipating. Hey, Mike, it's Brian Kelly. So, you know, today we saw uh, 10-year yields go below, or the dividend yield on the S&P 500 go below the 10-year yield. So you kind of had this shift there. Is the, in your world, is the bond market and yields going below 125? Is that over now? Are, are we looking at the other side? Have they priced in everything you're thinking about? I think, uh, you know, Dan mentioned maybe we go to 1%. I think that would be probably the the lower limit. But I think there's a point where lower yields are no longer good for valuations. And that's the part of the mid-cycle transition that's not over yet, right? So PEs are still elevated at 21 and a half times forward. We think the right number is sort of 18 times. This is a tough game to play, but we have to play it. And we think that that PE contraction will occur as yields go lower, meaning lower yields are no longer good for stocks because lower yields are telling us that there's going to be a growth disappointment. And we do think that there is some risk for earnings to come down in 2022 because of taxes going up and because of margin pressure, because of these cost pressures, which we do not think are transient. It's not runaway inflation, but these are more structural cost increases, we believe, that, particularly in labor, that we think will, will, will uh, translate into lower margins next year. 
So, Mike, do you think the bond market and the move in the 10-year yield is actually telegraphing a message to the markets, or is it purely technical and something that you look through? Because I feel like a lot of people are, are, who are bullish on the markets in particular are saying, you know what, look through this. <laughs> this is just a technical move. This is short covering, et cetera. Well, it's both. I mean, clearly we got a little bit uh, oversold, you know, towards the end of March. There was a lot of technical things driving it that way. But, you know, for the folks who think it's all tactical, I mean, the move really began in April, which coincided with kind of this peak rate of change. So I think it's a little bit of both. I think the part that's being underestimated right now is that there is information still in the bond market, not as much as it used to be because it's somewhat manipulated. But there is information in the curve flattening. And the the information is telling us, we think, that growth is going to be a little bit softer. That's why we think that index level correction is still in front of us. 10, 15 percent would be quite healthy. We think that happens into the fall um, and that will complete the mid-cycle transition. All right, Mike, great to see you. Thank you. Thank Mike you. Wilson, 3,900 base case for the S&P 500. Karen, financials have been having a tough go of it because of these yields. Are they going to get a respite? Mm-hmm. I hope so. I do think so. I mean, we'll, we'll see. I like that they're going into earnings having sold off a lot, I think. JP Morgan is down, I don't know, maybe a little less than 10%. I actually bought some JP Morgan one by two call spreads today just for earnings because I think the risk reward's compelling. So they're, they're definitely cheaper going into earnings. The question is, are they cheap? I think so. But what we really need to hear from them is their economic outlook and will they grow their loan book? Because if rates are here and they don't have more loans, then that NIM will continue to be pressured. And I still think they'll have good trading revenue and good banking revenue, but nothing like the just white hot last year's fourth quarter, this year's first quarter with SPACs and deals. And uh, they'll still be good, but not as good. And we saw their credit card portfolio is in great shape, but it's smaller and that's a high yield business. So all of that has been weighing on on bank stocks and I'm staying long going into earnings. We'll see, I think Tuesday, JP Morgan. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's coming up on us real fast. Um, Guy, here's the question, though. What's more mm, powerful when mm. it comes to the bank trade? Positive words from Jamie Dimon, the CEO of J.P. Morgan, or the 10-year yield? <laughs> well, as you know, I don't have a restraining order uh, filed against me by Jamie Dimon, so I'm free to say what I want. As powerful as he is, I think the 10-year yield transcends anything. That, and I think he would agree with that, by the way. If and when he comes on to a show, we can ask him. But 10-year yield. And I do think, you know, Chris Verone, go back and listen to what Chris said last night. Really, really thoughtful work. Carter's been on this, as has Dan. I think we bounce here. And to Karen's point, the bank's probably set up really well in their earnings next week. Coming up, shares of Alibaba under pressure once again today. The stock is now down for six straight days. Is this pullback a buying opportunity? Stick around to find out. And later, we're speaking exclusively with Twitter CFO Ned Siegel. That stock had a rough day today. He'll tell us what is next for the company. Stick around. All that and much more when Fast Money returns. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? 
At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got a BABA breakdown on our hands. The stock slumping more than 3% today. It is now down for six straight sessions as China continues its crackdown on big tech. Um, Karen, you own this name. You stuck by it. At what point do you say, you know what, maybe, maybe it's not some of the parts anymore. Maybe the regulatory issue is too much of an overhang. Well, that probably was like 30 points ago, I guess. But... Um, you know, I've been in I've been in a lot of unfashionable trades in my career. Um, this is really turning out to be one of them as well, and I am going to stick with it. I know you know the regulatory environment is obviously awful. I think people don't think it's good, right? So that's somewhat priced in. The question is, is it enough priced in, and is the war, risk reward compelling enough? To me. It is. I mean, the flip side of all of this uh, crackdown is, um, do you think that you're going to see a lot of new startups, uh, a lot of money flow in and a lot of um, you know, competitors to the big tech? I don't know. Probably not would be my guess, but I'm not sure. So all that having been said, though, I do come back to valuation and I do come back to this incredible business of Alibaba, forgetting all of the pieces that they own, forgetting Didi, forgetting Ant, and whatever other ones I'm forgetting. Um, still, there is a real business there and a balance sheet with a ton of cash. So uh, it clearly hasn't worked, certainly not this week. Thank God it was a short week, although it wasn't in China. So um, I'm staying with it, though. I think you know, ultimately I'll make money from here. Yeah, it, it, you know, Karen, we, we had a long-term chart here from its IPO going back, and it just broke on a log basis, like that uptrend that had been in place since 2014. The lows there, kind of nasty business there, and it kind of retested it. Um, all that being said, all the fundamental points you make are pretty good. The one that we have no idea about is that regulatory crackdown. How much longer does it go? If you look at the all-time highs that it made last November, um, that's when they kind of disappeared Jack Ma for a little bit and everything like that. So think about how far we've come, how much reach that they've had with other companies. I don't think they want to kill their champions. I think that they really are trying to flex with the 100-year anniversary of the Communist Party, and I think she, President Xi knows much better than that. He basically says, not your money, it's our money here. Just get in line. And, 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 and we're probably close to a bottom. I agree I with that, but they can inflict a whole lot more pain before they kill an Alibaba. And even for companies that are already listed on U.S. exchanges, the Chinese government could make it very difficult for these companies to have secondary offerings or other right. share and, offerings. And that, I mean, that is the reason why we have the weakness, right, is that you're getting this uh, t turnover in shareholder base. So, you know, you, you definitely have to watch out for that, but we're probably coming towards the end, at least in my view. And then if I look at the kind of bigger macro picture of what's going in in China, you know, we had the credit impulse that has come down. Now they're talking about potential triple R cuts, which is going to increase that credit impulse again. So that's probably good for, for Alibaba. So if you can get through this period where China's simply just trying to take, take control of their champions here, I, I think the fundamental and the macro tailwinds really line up for this name. All right, we're just getting started here on Fast Money. Here's what's coming up next. Coming up, media moguls are wheeling and dealing in Sun Valley. We'll talk to Twitter CFO Ned Siegel about what's on his radar. 
You don't want to miss that interview. Plus, a crypto takedown. Our Bitcoin baller BK is breaking down today's big moves and what it means for the cryptocurrency space. We've got that and a lot more when Fast Money returns. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of Twitter tumbling today, but that stock has been on a tear over the past month, up more than 13%. So what is next for the social media stock? Let's get to Julia Borson live in Sun Valley for an exclusive interview with Twitter, Twitter CFO Ned Siegel. Julia. Thanks so much, Melissa. And Ned Siegel, CEO, CFO of Twitter, thank you so much for joining us here in Sun Valley. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So I understand you're in a quiet period. We're not going to get into any of the things you can't discuss, but I'm so curious about the pace of product development. Twitter has been unveiling so many new things, especially over the last six months. You have Spaces, you have Twitter Blue, the subscription service. You're working on all of these different tools. Or should we expect you to continue that pace of product introductions? Well, I'm so glad you've noticed we are moving a lot faster. And we feel like we've been moving faster for years. But at first, it was laying the infrastructure, setting the strategy, establishing the team. And now you see it in the product, where we're iterating faster, whether it's around subscription offerings, where we now have Twitter Blue available in Australia and in Canada, or in spaces, which you mentioned, where we're allowing people now to sign up, to have ticketed spaces, to schedule spaces. This is our live audio chat room where you can leverage your whole Twitter network to find people who are interested in the topics you are and talk more about them. So when you talk about ticketed spaces and when you talk about subscriptions, I think these are two new potential revenue streams. At what point do you think those two streams or other revenue streams outside of advertising could actually be meaningful for your business? Well, we hope they'll be meaningful over time. What's really important to us when you think about these subscription offerings and some of the other things we're doing, first, we want to get the whole world to use Twitter. So spaces is just another way to give people access to great tools and great content. Uh, second is we know that through a subscription, we can both provide people a premium offering that they otherwise might not get, but also we can help people get paid for bringing great content to Twitter. So some of what you'll see from us over time isn't where the subscription value accrues to Twitter. It's where it goes to the person who's creating the value. But just a quick follow-up on that. What percentage of Twitter users do you expect to ever be paying users? It's too early to say what that'll be, uh, but over time, we think that we can provide real value to people through a subscription. They might subscribe to long-form content that doesn't include ads where they're seeing newsletters about topics that they care about deeply. They may be subscribing to a service where we're giving them access to features that they otherwise may not have access to. But one way or another, we think there's a lot of value that we can provide to many, many people beyond the ads that they see and the great tweets that they see today. Melissa, you want to jump in here? Yeah, Ned, I wanted to ask you about um, some of the activity on Twitter these days with the rise of the retail investor. I, I can tell you personally that I've seen so many tweets uh, regarding a lot of the Reddit favorite stocks like AMC on a regular basis. You can see a hashtag AMC something trending in the United States. And I'm wondering what sort of uplift, if any, you've had because of this rise in the retail investor. 
Well, there's a really robust conversation around investing on Twitter. We actually try to be a part of it sometimes. I joined a space to talk about our, our earnings call after the call last quarter uh, to not talk to institutional investors, but to talk to retail investors who otherwise might not have access to a management team to talk about uh, the company's performance. We want to make sure that we provide people a way to talk about the topics they care about most, whether it's retail investors, sports, entertainment, politics, or anything else. On the advertising side, we mentioned back in April that we saw 10x growth from investing, betting, and crypto advertisers in Q1 of 2021, which both demonstrates that this is a really important trend, that we have a lot of the audience on Twitter already, and that our advertising products are getting better and better. At the same time, you know, Twitter has been very active uh, in battling misinformation, uh, putting labels on tweets that that may contain questionable information. Are you doing that with the same vigor uh, when it comes to financial information, whether it be in crypto or in, in stocks? Well, the health of the conversation on Twitter is so important to us, whether it's making sure that people can trust the information they see and feel safe being a part of the conversation around investing, in the United States or around politics in Europe or another part of the world. And that means giving people the tools so that they can control who replies. It means making sure that we remove spammy and suspicious behavior before people see it through machine learning tools and, and other actions that we can take and making our rules really clear to people so they know what to expect from us. Are you ever concerned no, that, Ned, you know, I'm in terms of, sorry, okay. Julie, I just wanted to follow up, in terms of the health of the conversation, that, that Twitter is being used as a platform for manipulation, particularly when it comes to some of the cryptocurrencies and, and the smaller stocks. For instance, you know, a Dogecoin, one person can tweet, one kind of person can tweet one word and move that market. Well, one of the great things about Twitter is somebody can say something, everybody gets to see it. And that means that people can respond with their own point of view. We don't feel like it's our responsibility to give people a point of view. It's our opportunity to show them what other people think and allow them to be a part of the conversation, whether it's around crypto or around sports. Um, and Ned, just a final question about advertising. We've talked about some of the non-ad revenue streams, but your bread and butter is advertising. I'm curious how the changes that Apple has made that are limiting targeting and also the changes that Google is going to eventually make in terms of limiting targeting via cookies are going to impact your business. Is there an opportunity there? Is it going to damage your business? What does it mean? Well, these changes will certainly bring adjustments for the entire industry for advertisers, for agencies, for ads-supported platforms, for the operating system providers, and for customers who have to decide what information they want to share. Everybody's going to have to adjust, and this is going to take a long time. We'll have to see how advertisers choose to pay for ads. Do they adjust their campaigns to reflect this? We see opportunity here for Twitter. We choose to be really transparent with people, what information uh, we ask of for them, give them choice around it, and then use it in a really transparent way to give them, hopefully, ads that are really informative and helpful and relevant to the conversation that they're a part of. We think this will end up leveling the playing field where uh, many will now have the same information that they work with in order to show relevant ads for advertisers. Interesting. And before we let you go, I want to get your thoughts on cybersecurity. I know Twitter's been hacked in the past, and you've also had individual high-profile user accounts hacked in the past. As we see this growing threat um, of cybersecurity risks, how are you addressing that at the company? Well, at the highest levels, we're constantly considering and investing 
and learning to make sure that we're developing best practices and applying them. For example, we recently have given people the ability to use a physical key to keep their account secure. So even if somebody got their password, even if somebody had their phone number, if they don't have that physical key, that's an example of a way that we're allowing people to secure their accounts that they hadn't been able to do before. But we'll continue to iterate and learn around cybersecurity so we can make sure that advertisers, that the people who use our service can continue to trust uh, Twitter to take good care of their information. Certainly a topic that's top of mind for a lot of folks here in Sun Valley. Ned Siegel, CFO of Twitter, thanks so much for talking to us today. Thanks for having me. Melissa, back over to you guys. All right, Julia, thank you. Julia Borston in Sun Valley. Um, Guy Dami, you have been the Twitter bull here. What do you think? Yeah, Dan has as well. Obviously had a rough day today, but the stock has been on a tear. I, I think Twitter's doing everything right. I've said that for a while. The stock has had fits and starts, but I think it's going to continue this rally into earnings on the 22nd. And he's right about Twitter spaces. They have a real opportunity there not only to take over from Clubhouse, but to monetize in a way they haven't been able to. I think Twitter's going to challenge that $80 level we saw, I believe it was, on March 1st of this year. Yeah, Mel, and I found your question really interesting about whatever the trend is, whatever the hot thing is, and whether it's meme stock or crypto or whatever, it's happening on Twitter. And that's always been their premise that it's this kind of, you know, this, this global kind of meeting place or whatever. So to me, the scarcity of that and then the ability of these new products that they're launching where a lot of people, let's say they're influencers or whatever, their social graph maps to it. Now you can write a newsletter, you can do live audio, maybe it turns into a micro podcasting platform that spaces or whatever. I just think there's a lot of interesting things things going on there. The last thing I'll just say is, to Guy's point, the stock has rallied 50% in the last two months since it kind of got washed out after the last earnings report. I don't love that action. They're going to report in a couple weeks. Um, but I will say this. If you look at 2022 estimates and 2023, uh, EPS estimates of up 40% and sales up about 23%, that seems pretty reasonable for a company that might be inflecting right here. So I think you want to continue to buy this thing on pullbacks. All right, coming up, crypto getting crushed today. So what drove the sell-off around Bitcoin baller? BK is here to break it down. And later, taking cover, what we spot in the options market today following today's pullback. We'll bring it to you when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Crypto prices down again today. Bitcoin, Ether, Litecoin, Doge all getting crushed. Investors pulling out of risk assets amid the broader market sell-off. We got the Bitcoin baller here on set with us. So, um, Beaks, what's your take on where we are? So, you know, it's what's interesting about Bitcoin is that we've all been playing this adoption theme, right? And so what has driven adoption, it has really been Federal Reserve policy and central bank policy. Money printer goes burr, as you see it on the Twitter, right? So what we've seen since the Jackson Hole meeting of 2020 is that Bitcoin and bond yields have actually trended together and traded together. It's not a perfect correlation, but they're pretty tightly correlated, or at least they, they trend in the same direction. So what that tells me is that Bitcoin has become a macro asset, number one. Number two, it is being used as a pro-cyclical inflation head. So when you have central bank policy being very loose and you think there's going to be inflation, macro funds and macro players are buying Bitcoin. And what we saw as we saw the money supply start to come out, start to turn down, talk of taper turned down, you saw Bitcoin come down. So if you are a Bitcoin bull like me, what you really want to see at this Jackson Hole meeting is the Federal Reserve to come out and say, hey, listen, we're not going to taper. We, we were wrong. This was a policy mistake. Or at least walk back some of that talk and have bond yields go higher. And you even saw it today, intraday, when bond yields started to tick up, Bitcoin started to tick up. In a world, though, where you do expect the Fed to start tapering, mm -hmm. you have a limited window. 
So I'm not sure. I, I don't necessarily expect the Fed to start tapering. I actually think that the taper talk was a brilliant way to kind of knock the stuffing out of the inflation reflation trade. Uh, took a little bit of the heat off of it. Boning. But I don't think I don't think they can raise rates that much. So, Beeks, this is her show. She usually asks the question, but I got a question for you, buddy. We're sitting here and we spend so much time talking about this macro asset, as you called it. It's got a $600 billion market cap. It's just like in macro world, that's like the smallest trade on the board, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. so, like, are we wasting too much time trying to figure it all out here and just kind of let it play out and see what happens with this great experiment with the Federal Reserve and maybe... You know, maybe it is that store of value that's no, going to replace No, I, I mean, listen, I, the, I, the whole theme on crypto is it is an adoption story. Will it be adopted as an asset? And what I'm saying is it is starting to be adopted as a macro asset. Now, the bigger picture is if it's adopted as a macro asset, will it disrupt gold? And so at $600 billion versus gold's $10 trillion, if you think that's going to happen, which I happen to think it's going to happen to some extent, then $600 billion is the wrong number. It's in the trillions. Coming up, media mogul Tom Rogers will join us to talk the state of the industry and what key things investors should be keeping an eye out for. Plus, the stock sell-off options traders going all in on insurance plays will break down the big action, how you can protect yourself, too. Stay tuned. Miss a moment of fast? Catch us anytime on the go. Follow the Fast Money Podcast. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out the media stocks closing mostly in the red along with the broader market. So how should you be trading some of these big names? Let's bring in Engine Media's executive chairman, Tom Rogers. He's also a former NBC cable president and a CNBC contributor, Fast Money friend. Um, And now we should note uh, the executive chairman of a publicly traded company, Engine Media, just listed today. So congratulations on that, Tom. Before we get to that, I do want to ask you about um, the media space. Sun Valley is going on right now. Will any deals come out of it, you think? Well, there's usually conversation that if there isn't an immediate deal announcement, there's uh, uh, something that uh, lingers and ultimately turns into a deal announcement. So uh, maybe months down the road, but there'll be conversations that lead to some deals. You want to give us a prediction of, of what, what conversations will linger? <laughs> Well, traditional media has a lot of challenges, so traditional media has got to find a new path, and uh, when companies uh, find that they need a new path, uh, usually they find their way to some deal. So uh, something involving traditional media going someplace is uh, my broadest prediction. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Karen, you got a question for Tom? Well, I do. I'm going to take your broadest prediction and just overlap that with something I have in my portfolio, which is Viacom. And so, you know, you saw the crazy ride that the stock had maybe having nothing to do with valuation whatsoever, but they did do an offering. They did raise some money. But do you see them as, I mean, will this still be a public company? I'll give you a lot of time. In five years. Uh, Well, uh, my guess is that they will have to find a path to uh, value beyond uh, being independent, but I wouldn't think that would necessarily happen near term. Uh, they have some very tr- uh, challenged cable assets, uh, some of the more challenged cable assets, particularly in the kids' area, and they have um, a uh, sub-scale <laughs> streaming effort that's gaining a little momentum, uh, but uh, clearly on its own, it's going to be very difficult, I think, to break into the, to the top four or five streaming services that people have in their homes. 
so uh, I would keep my eye on that one as uh, something in the intermediate term that uh, transacts in some way. Hey, Thomas, Dan, congrats on, on the listing here at the NASDAQ uh, Thanks, for NG Media. Listen, you, you've combined some really hot trends and in, in digital trends together with esports and gaming, and you have the programmatic advertising. Um, you, you're doing it with an influencer bolt-on here. Tell us about why all those pieces work so well together and the opportunity, specifically, I guess, in esports, too. Uh, well, thanks, Dan. Well, uh, we've talked on the show about media trends. We've talked on the show about gaming trends. What um, uh, Engine Media really is is a combination of gaming and media assets where the two really reinforce each other. And each has a differentiated way for people to play the, um, the gaming sector and how the media world reinforces the gaming sector. So we have uh, uh, a company that provides viewing experiences for uh, people who are watching uh, sports on TV and gamifies it. Uh, the same for uh, the hundreds of millions of global viewers of esports and gamifies that. Uh, we have a platform that allow esports competitors to play against each other, major tournaments that we hold for the likes of uh, uh, Tencent's Riot and Microsoft, and we broadcast those tournaments out to the uh, fans of the esports world, which again are hundreds of millions. A lot of people thought that the uh, esport viewing trend was a pandemic thing that would fizzle. We're actually seeing that uh, viewership across the major esports platforms, Twitch, Facebook gaming, YouTube gaming, are actually up 80% year over year as we're coming out of the pandemic. So as you said, Dan, we also combine that with uh, how to reach influencers in a gaming environment, how to sell programmatic advertising in a gaming environment. Very importantly, the data and analytics for gaming that are so important for media companies to navigate how they reach the younger demographics that are there. So it's really a collection of businesses where gaming meets media, how the two reinforce each other with, again, a very differentiated way of playing the gaming sector. Tickers game up 80% year on year. That's just staggering, Tom. Thanks for joining us. Always good to see you. Well, we got game and we have the symbol game. So it's great <laughs> to allow me to talk about game with you guys. Thanks very much. Tom Rogers. Guy Dami, I know what you're going to say. <laughs> you know what? Say it. Say it yourself. Can you even say the word on national TV? I'll say it. You say the it man's all the a time. stud. And I'm actually surprised it's not up more than 80% because not only is he a stud, he's Midas because everything he touches turns to gold. And what I will say, we didn't get a chance to talk about it quickly, is you know Netflix reports on the 20th, and Tom knows this as, as do I and our viewers. I mean, the stock has been trading sideways effectively since this time last year. I would submit this is about as er uh, important an earnings call they've had in quite some time to see if you finally get that reacceleration of growth which powered the stock for so long. I think you will, and I think Netflix is pretty interesting in their earnings on the 20th. Coming up, we will tell you how some traders are using options to protect against today's market pullback. Don't go anywhere. Much more Fast Money right after this. Welcome back. Here's a sneak peek at the Kramer Cam. Jim is talking with the CEO of Poshmark. Catch that full interview, top of the hour on Mad Money. Let's take one more look at today's sell-off. The Dow falling more than 300 points as Treasury yields fell once again today. Traders in the options market are wasting no time buying insurance. Mike Co. joins us now to break down the action. Mike. 
Yeah, so we were taking a look at SPXU. This is a triple inverse S&P 500 ETF. It is a trading instrument that is designed to deliver three times the daily inverse returns of the S&P. So obviously a long bet in SPXU is a bearish bet on the S&P. And that's exactly what we've been seeing in the options markets. Today we saw 53 times as many calls trading as puts. The most active opening activity was in the July 18 and a half calls. Those expire a week from tomorrow. And the average price of those was about 32 and a half cents on over 18,000 traded. Now, of course, Options traders are using very short-dated options because you can't hold on to these levered ETFs very long because they experience a lot of decay. If you take a look at a long-term price chart, you're going to see that. But this is definitely a trading instrument. These are short-term bets, and it does seem that they're setting up for potentially more downside. Yeah, I think Mike would agree. Those are pretty treacherous instruments. He just mentioned the fact that you don't want to do them long term. The idea of trading options on those things seems kind of crazy to me. Just look at the options market. The at the money put with the SPY, the ETF that tracks the S&P 500 next week expiration that Mike's talking about on July 16th would cost you less than 1% of the ETF price. So you don't need all the leverage. In the, I mean, maybe you do. Maybe that's your jam. But it's a really hard way to make money options on triple levered things. Yeah. Karen, what did your portfolio look like right now? Uh, it doesn't have that options on triple levered <laughs> things. I have some protection. I'm long. I am always long, right? So, you know, days like today. Actually, some of the things held in well today. Target, Walmart, Amazon, those kind of things did okay. But, um, you know, I have some protection, but probably 80% net long, 85% net long. I'm going to go um, off topic a little bit because Karen mentioned Amazon. That was a really interesting move in, in light of today's action, particularly in big cap tech. Guy, thoughts on this uh, move higher by Amazon? Off the board for 500, please. Well, if you're a fast money fan, you'll know we mm -hmm. said, you know, the third time up, it's not going to stop at 3550. And we thought Amazon set up really well into earnings. To be honest with you, I'm surprised that, that we've done it this early. You know, still a few weeks to report. I'll say this. I think Amazon will continue to trade higher into earnings, mm -hmm. but as well as it set up two weeks ago, I think that's as precarious as it sets up now. I'd be looking mm -hmm. to take profits a day or two before earnings towards the end of the month. All right. Uh, Mike thank you uh, for more Options Action. Full show is tomorrow, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Up next, Final Trades. Final trade time, guys. Biogen. Karen. Going around the globe. INDY, NDI shares. BK. Yeah, it looks like the bond market may have run its course here. I think you buy TBT. Dan Nathan. Yeah, I know Karen's not going to like this, but I'm with you on your Pfizer breaking out above this range it's been in for two months. <laughs> Thank you for watching Fast Money. I'll see you in 12 hours on Squawk Box. <laughs> Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. <laughs> The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind. 
just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.